ice coffee listeners. I'm down on Point Cook foreshore, nestled into a thicket of reckless fern and salt bush to stay out of the wind. Recording here particularly because I want to capture some of the bird song that I hope will entice some of the birders of my recent acquaintance to come visit me here on the stretch of coast I inhabit, which lies between the Ramsar wetland sites at the former Cheatham Salt Works and Point Wilson. And because it's a nice spot. Episode 148. Shots fired. The Hope Bay Hype. Did I ever tell you about the time Antarctic territorial claims nearly resulted in an open declaration of war between two claimant nations? Well, are you sitting comfortably? The Falklands Islands Dependency Survey last got a look in in episode 129, recounting events in the 1947-48 span. Argentine interests in Antarctica last got a mention in episode 128. For episode 148, I decided to address what happens when you point two national Antarctic... Easy for you to say. To address what happens when you point two national Antarctic programs at one another, the resulting collision going down in history as the Hope Bay incident. When I last checked in on Argentina in the big picture, Juan Perón came to the presidency in 1946 off the back of 52% of the national vote and made some big strides in labour rights, pissing off the bourgeoisie, and giving women the vote, which pissed off lots of men, while his second wife, Eva, ran ministries, which also pissed off men, and inspired Andrew Lloyd Webber, which pissed me off. But it can't all be good. The Perón government also engaged in a slate of public perception gambits geared to keep Antarctica to the forefront of Argentine mines. These included the new law requiring all government-published maps of Argentina incorporate the nation's claimed Antarctic territory, and a postage stamp initiative celebrating Argentina's achievements in the South and the national heroes, mostly naval personnel, who achieved them. The Postal Service also began publishing a stamp series celebrating the nation's association with the Malvinas which the Brits still insisted on calling the Falklands and living on. Perón's government began diplomatic attempts to press other nations to recognise the Falklands as La Malvinas and to pressure Britain to cede authority over them to Argentina, though with very limited success. Funding became available to increase the staff numbers within La Commission Nacional de la Antarctica, drawing on expertise within the ministries of justice public education, war, agriculture, maritime and aviation. Particular expertise within the commission arose in Captain Julio Polk, who sailed with the USASA as an observer for the Armada Republica Argentina in 1939, and Captain Odera, who commanded the ARA Primera de Mayo during its 1942 campaigns to lay depots, erect navigational markers and fly the Argentine Traband over as much Antarctic territory as the Austral Summer allowed, and Jose Manuel Moneta, who wintered at Orcadas Station four times on the behalf behalf of the Servicio Meteorologico Nacional, who became secretary to the commission. The commission established a multi-part plan to buttress the Argentine Antarctic territorial claim. One, 
delineate the claimed territory once and for all. Two, assess how to come to agreements about Argentine Antarctic territory with other powers interested in Antarctica. Three, plan an expedition to establish permanent occupation in a larger swathe of Argentine Antarctic territory, expanding the nation's meteorological capacity and surveying the coast and making the Navy a permanent presence within the claimed territory. Four, analyse the geostrategic value of the Antarctic Peninsula, which at the time meant see if there's any uranium and whether or not Argentine interests could mine it. Five, apply wide-ranging aerial photography. Six, do science. Seven, purchase boats suited to the tasks mapped in all preceding bullet points. The Commission addressed Bullet Point 1 by Federal Decree on the 2nd of September, 1946. President Perón announcing the Argentine Antarctic Territory lay between 38 degrees 34 minutes west and 74 degrees west. Negotiations between the newly instituted Ministry of External Affairs and its Chilean counterparts resulted in a joint declaration regarding the relative Antarctic territorial claims after a meeting in March 1947 but the agreements therein have since been largely ignored and the two nations' claims continue to overlap. The two nations also agreed to a taxonomic united front, Argentina theoretically putting aside the name Tierra de San Martín and Chile theoretically placing Tierra de O'Higgins in abeyance as both nations theoretically began referring to the Antarctic Peninsula as Tierra de los Libertadores which didn't last long and no longer receives any nods in any publications about Antarctica published anywhere. With regard to the last bullet point, the Navy made the ARA Patagonia the Antarctic flagship, reinforcing the hull and installing propeller protection guards and installing all new radio and sonar equipment. While the ship underwent refit, the British ambassador to Buenos Aires presented the Argentine government with a note offering to help all nations with an interest in Antarctica with their efforts in that region, tacitly expressing administration over the region that it couldn't evidence overtly because of the dents the British economy took in the recent war and the ongoing dissolution of its empire. The Argentine government sensibly ignored this passive-aggressive attempt to dissuade them from doing their own thing in the Southern Ocean, and expedition preparations continued absent British advice and or interference. Commanded by Captain Luis Miguel Garcia, the Patagonia departed Buenos Aires on the 4th of January 1947, joined at Ushuaia by the transport ship Chaco and the tanker ship Ministro Escura, and at sea by the whalers Don Samuel and Don Ernesto of the Compañía Argentina de Pesca. This fleet carried south under orders to establish a permanent base at Deception Island and another among the Melchior Islands further along the western side of the Antarctic Peninsula. The Argentine expedition found the Fitzroy and the Trapassi anchored up in Whalers Bay, Deception Island. Captain Garcia made the standard formal protest and received the formal protest in his turn. Argentine sailors began building their base buildings at Telephone Bay. The Patagonia carried a supermarine walrus on its stern for aerial survey work, one of a batch of eight war surplus machines refurbished by Supermarine and sold on to the Argentine Navy. The Argentine crew unfolded the machine, lowered it to the water and afforded it a flight around the island's caldera, taking its time above base B at Whalers Bay, just to show the Brits that while they ruled the waves, Argentina waived the rules laid out in the British protest document, and making the British de Havilland Hornet moth, still crated up on the beach at Whalers Bay, 
look every bit as useless as it proved that year. The Argentine walrus spent a total of 30 hours in the air that austral summer, scouting for the fleet and making with the aerial survey photography as well as that outdated airframe could manage. Compared with the Trimetragon camera units in use at the same time in Operation High Jump, which still mostly churned out functionally useless imagery absent ground control points and extensive auto-rectifications that no one in the USA was willing to pay for, the crew aboard the Argentine biplane couldn't do much more than bang out high-quality snapshots. Nice to look at, but of no more cartographic use than hand-drawn mud maps. The Argentine fleet, newly expanded by the arrival of the patrol boats ARA Miratura and ARA King, the first Argentine-built ships to visit Antarctica, moved on to Admiralty Bay, King George Island. A detachment put ashore and visited a newly built and summer-occupied FIDS meteorological hut, Base G. The grand tour continued with a visit to Port Lockroy and FIDS Base A. Argentine installations of navigation beacons on nearby islands received formal protest from the Base A leader, Lieutenant Hardy, shortly before he and his team mothballed their buildings for the 1947 winter, the first without British staff on site since the start of Operation Tabarin. Argentine sailors erected additional navigational markers at Cape Anna and on Anvers Island. The new Argentine station, Base Deception, officially opened on the 25th of January 1948, starting a permanent occupation that would continue for two decades, more on which anon. Argentina's presence in Antarctica continued to develop as both a counter to FID's presence and as a bolster to a national sense of Antarctic identity, and while the soldiers and sailors stationed at its outposts didn't get as much science done as their British counterparts per capita or per monetary unit, that was never the point in the eyes of the politicians who opened national purses to pay for such programs or in the eyes of the public whose taxes paid for them. Our people occupy that space and administer over that space still takes precedence over what differential national programs discover and in what journals their work sees publication. The impact factor of a scientific paper is of interest to publishing scientists, but most people outside academia likely think that I just referenced something to do with hammers. At the Melchior Islands, Argentine sailors replaced the plaque denoting the area as Argentine territory, previously removed by British sailors. Propriedad del Ministerio de Marine de la República, the new marker stated. And the Argentine Triband replaced the enameled Union Jack on a tin sheet, left in place by the last visitors. Working in foul conditions, a survey team marked out the site of future base buildings, but the rocky ground available on Gamma Island the Melchior Islands are all named with letters of the Greek alphabet, required extensive levelling the expedition couldn't manage with the materials to hand. Just to keep themselves in the actual and the ice coffee narrative, the Chilean Navy turned up in the form of the Angamos, which arrived on site, and the sailors of the two nations, referring to one another as brothers behind the Andes, celebrated the absence of British personnel with asado and four days of friendly coexistence pin in that for three decades later. Recall that the Angamos was one of the two ships Chile purchased as war surplus, the other being the Aquique, both mentioned in episode 132, and serving the nation in the far south, establishing and relieving new bases in Greenwich Bay and on the Trinity Peninsula.
Chilean President Gabriel González Videla sought to forcefully establish Chile as an Antarctic territorial claimant, but his nation had a lot of catching up to do in the face of British and Argentine occupation and exploration to date. The ships went their separate ways in mid-February, but the Patagonia returned to the Melchiors a week later with a construction party, loads of dynamite and the raw materials of steel and reinforced concrete. The former used the middle to flatten a space on which to apply the latter as building foundations and radio antenna bases. A visit by the Trapassi and its accompanying magistrate saw the Argentine sailors receive the traditional protest note, while a ranking Argentine officer responded in kind. Construction of Melchior Station ran throughout March, opening for meteorological business on the 31st with a volley of rifle fire and sailors' hats thrown in the air. The eight wintering occupants stayed on at the new station, receiving further supplies and a ninth colleague in May when visited by ARA Thornier. The station remained permanently staffed until 1961 and remains available as a summer station, though it's looking decidedly clapped out in this second decade of the 21st century. Could do with a lick of paint, Armada Argentina. Just saying. Back in Argentina, La Comisión Nacional del Antártico published Soberania Argentina en la Antártica to enhance public understanding of the nation's geographic and exploratory heritage and seeking to conflate vigorous defence of the claimed Antarctic territory with defending the sovereignty of Argentina itself. In August 1947, British India, Britain's biggest and most profitable imperial jewel, gained its independence off the back of a protracted campaign of mostly non-violent resistance and civil disobedience. It took three years for the nation to disentangle itself from British, I mean, from British government oversight. The change coincided with the partitioning of the subcontinent into India and Pakistan along religious lines, the imperfect border prompting tens of millions of migrations and disputes over the border causing at least a million deaths. Same spot, different day, different weather. You'll periodically hear a foghorn from one of the ships at anchor out in the Port of Melbourne offing and Cessnas flying left-hand circuits out of Point Cook Air Base. But as you'd expect, the tide is 50 minutes behind itself from yesterday and there may be different birds in the mix due to the weather. Losing the income previously siphoned out of, I mean, happily passed along to the UK to cover administrative costs, the British economy, already shaky after half a decade of total war, really staggered. Austerity measures instituted to help place the nation on a war footing continued without any ready sign of abatement, and British military reach began to weaken worldwide as the Labour government under Prime Minister Clement Attlee cut costs, scrapping ships and closing airfields and disbanding the squadrons and regiments and demobilising the associated personnel at a rate bordering on frantic. The governments of Argentina and Chile were paying attention and making educated estimates about what this all meant in terms of the Royal Navy's future presence in the Southern Ocean. The British ambassador in Buenos Aires, Robert Leeper, 
sent a note suggesting the government of Argentina apply to His Majesty's government for a lease on the land in the Melchior Islands, on which the nine Argentine nationals now wintered. The Argentine government told His Majesty's representative to shove it up his jumper, though in more diplomatic terms than I just applied, challenging the United Kingdom to bring the matter before the Court of International Justice in The Hague, the United Nations having superseded the League of Nations and its permanent Court of International Justice in the wake of the Second World War and all the discredit that conflict's precursors threw on those well-intentioned but ineffectual bodies. Digression. The United Nations gets a lot of disdain for its own ineffectuality, but the condemnation isn't always warranted and often seems to stem from boomer and Gen X cynicism bordering on a will to diss something just because it seems cool and edgy to do so. The world would likely be a demonstrably shittier place than it presently is if the UN didn't exist, and we're not going to join in the cynicism of damning something good for not being perfect. The UN is a damn sight better than its predecessor, and orders of magnitude better than the nothing that preceded that. Digression over. Meanwhile, Falkland Island's governor, Sir Miles Clifford, began jockeying to dismantle Argentine credibility at South Georgia, calling into question the veracity of the meteorological record assembled under the auspices of the Compania de Pesca to Argentina, based on an assertion that the meteorologist existed in a constant state of alcoholic delirium and made up the results more often than he checked his instruments. With accurate MET data comprising part of the terms of the Compania's lease on the Gritviken site, Sir Miles prompted the Colonial Office to take over the meteorological duties and thereby reduce the international credibility of Argentine associations with the local geography. The FIDS installed a team of five in the Discovery Institute buildings at King Edward Point, becoming Base M, according to the FIDS naming scheme, at the head of the bay near Gritviken, under the leadership of meteorologist Danny Borland. While Laws took over the role for a year in order to carry out further work on elephant seals after this, Danny Borland returned to Gritviken the following year, when the British Meteorological Service took the meteorological duties over from the FIDS, and he remained in the role for two decades, becoming as much a fixture of Gritviken as the smell of rotting whale flesh. In the austral summer of 1947-48, the Armada Argentina sent south seven ships to relieve and resupply Argentine bases, and to conduct further aerial and maritime surveying. In this instance, survey flights fell to a Grumman Goose, a twin-engine monoplane flying boat of a far more advanced, but still badly outmoded, design than the Walrus. On the 13th of December 1947, while the Argentine ships lay at anchor in Port Foster, a four-engine Douglas C-54, also known as a DC-4, the big billy goat gruff to its twin-engine predecessor, the Douglas DC-3, noted extensively in episodes about Operation High Jump by the United States Navy designation R4D, operated by the Armada Argentina, overflew the harbour and dropped parcels of mail to its naval comrades. The British residents at Base B knew this was big news and got the coded word out to Stanley. Argentine air support extended from the mainland into the Antarctic. The flight, commanded by Naval Aviator Rear Admiral Gregorio Portillo and piloted by Naval Aviator Captain Gregorio Lorette, took off from Piedra Buena, a small town in the province of Santa Cruz named after the explorer of the same name. 
after making a mail drop to the occupants at the Melchior Islands, the C-54 carried on to cross the Antarctic Circle, becoming the first flight starting in continental America to do so. Portillo circled over Stonington Island before setting north once more. No account of this aerial visit arises in any document I've read from the FIDs present at the time, but their silence on the matter is most likely a matter of not kicking a PR goal by letting on that Argentina could reach that far south from its home turf. A reminder of whose nation lay geographically closer to the contested territory, and a stark contrast in logistical capacity at that particular historical crossroads. The FIDs returned to Base G to replace the temporary hut built the previous summer with a more permanent structure comprising a prefabricated unit. While the base staff were away on a survey foray, Argentine sailors from the minesweeper ARA Siva and the tug Charua began constructing a refuge shelter within metres of Base G. Given the presence of a hut and people to provide aid and succour, a refugio seems redundanto and I read it as a passive-aggressive Argentine erection. The residents of Base G saw it that way too, and dismantled the structure after the Argentine ships departed, stacking the materials neatly and erecting a sign reading British Crown Land in its place. The Armada Argentina deployed the ships Siva and Chirua as permanent additions to the personnel detached ashore at Telephone Bay at Deception Island. Political machinations briefly gave way to sports field machinations when the crew of the Siva challenged the crew of HMS Snipe to a soccer match. The Brits claimed victory, but we all know the extent to which both national sporting modes run to cheating, so I don't think anyone was scrying for an accurate read of the Antarctic future in the scoreboard. In addition to the annual relief and resupply missions, and some additional construction work at Deception Island. President Juan Perón ordered the Armada Argentina to go south in unprecedented numbers, deploying a fleet the Royal Navy couldn't match in the South Atlantic throughout February 1948. The initiative took the form of a series of high-latitudes naval drills, including combat preparedness training and naval gunfire exercises. The cruisers ARA Almirante Brown and ARA 25th of May, and the destroyers ARA Missions, Entre Rios, Santa Cruz, San Luis, Mendoza, and Cervantes, and the transport ships Patagonia and Ushuaia, sailed under the fleet command of Rear Admiral Harold Capas. Once more, the Argentines relied on a supermarine walrus flying boat for aerial support this airframe being better suited to operations from and back to a parent ship than the Grumman Goose, which could only deploy and retrieve in sheltered waters such as Port Foster. The fleet, carrying 3,000 Argentine sailors, departed Puerto Belgrano on the 12th of February. Britain sent the cruiser HMS Nigeria south, bringing the British maritime contingent in Antarctic waters that summer up to 980 sailors but couldn't field more hardware and personnel as economic and empire woes hamstrung the Royal Navy. The Australian government offered to send a warship as reinforcement, but Britain demurred, perhaps concerned that it might look weak to rely on its Commonwealth underling for material support in the face of this needling provocation from Patagonia, because it would be. 
When the Argentine fleet visited Deception Island, it met with the Chilean naval vessels operating in the south that season. The flagship, carrying President Gabriel González Videla, as the first Antarctic visit of any head of state. See episode 132. The Argentine minesweeper, A.R.A. King and Parker, replaced the A.R.A. Siva as garrison vessel in Port Foster at the end of the Austral summer. HMS Nigeria and HMS Snipe also came on station, watching to make sure the smaller vessels didn't make any fast moves or erect any additional flags ashore. But the situation lay clear to all observers. The Royal Navy couldn't respond quickly if the Armada Argentina opted to get pushy in Antarctic waters. To rub salt into wounded British pride, the Argentine vessels began presenting notes of protest to British whaling ships entering Port Foster for fishing Argentine waters without permission. HMS Snipe and HMS Nigeria operated around the Antarctic Peninsula well into March 1948, being sure to visit all bases, offering opportunities to vittle fids ones with unexpected but welcome extra consumables, and to show off British maritime force to the Patagonian ones. The Armada Argentina responded by setting the patrol boats Chiriguano and Sanaviron to patrol the same waters, each navy preferring official notes of protest at every opportunity. The US State Department began to feel concerned that the constant needling in the south might lead to armed conflict between Britain and Argentina. Not enough to actually do anything about it, but the concern existed. Director of Comisión Nacional Antarctica de la Argentina, Dr Pascual de la Rosa, met with the Chilean Minister for Foreign Affairs, German Vigara Donoso, in Santiago in March 1948, to map the United Patagonian defensive Antarctic territorial claims in the face of British attempts at post-Empire imperialism. They arrived at a plan to claim the sector between 25 and 90 degrees west. In London, Winston Churchill, whose Prime Ministership faltered when the wartime coalition that held the government together through the war in Europe disintegrated, and then ended in the resulting general election in July 1945, when the nation, eager to leave the nightmare of the war behind, voted in Labour Party candidate Clement Attlee, denounced the Andean Alliance as a provocation toward a Third World War. While Churchill's rally drew a large crowd, his call to take Argentine and Chilean provocations in the far south seriously went largely ignored by the government, which had enough on its hands what with the empire crumbling and food and clothing purchases still rationed throughout the UK and took no direct action, though the recent demonstration of South Atlantic naval power did give a number of British power brokers concern about a possible future Argentine maritime assault on the Falklands. Pin in that for later. Digression. Winston Churchill was good at exactly one good thing, if you don't count boozing and smoking cigars as laudable talents. That one thing being, being a focal point of stoic British ambition to hold together under dire circumstances and win through. He was exactly the right man to lead a fractured and underprepared nation through five years of struggle against European fascism, and I'll sing his praises on that front. But on every other front, he was a racist, misogynist, imperial nightmare who deliberately caused more unnecessary deaths than any reasonable human being should be able to fall asleep contemplating. Churchillian digression over. 
though I guess I could credit him with some sick burns, if the quotes attributed to him recount original claps back and not just someone with a good memory for insulting Bon Mo that they heard at the club. Okay, digression really over this time. In August 1948, an Argentine delegation to the Inter-American Conference in Bogota, Colombia, led by Special Ambassador Dr. Pascual de la Rosa, pressed that a proposed security zone be established around the Americas, including all islands forming part of the Scotia Arc and the Antarctic Peninsula. By incorporating the Falkland Islands, the South Shetland Islands, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands under this technical definition of the security zone, the Argentine government theoretically automatically involved the USA in any subsequent military incursion in that region, such as Britain moving its naval vessels about that area. The gambit didn't pay dividends immediately, as the US definitions of its Monroe Doctrine duties worked as a diode, only requiring action from other nations in support of US interests and never the other way around, unless such actions also promised outcomes in the US best interests. One minor win for Argentina arose in that the US Secretary of State, George C. Marshall, encouraged the UK and Argentina to settle their dispute over the Antarctic territories peacefully, representing a shift from a pro-UK stance in the matter to neutrality. Pin in that for 1982. In the short term, Washington sent instructions to its embassies to effectively tell the UK, Chile and Argentina to blow it out their ass if they sought to call on the US to support any attempt to kick each other out of the claimed territory, though perhaps using more diplomatic language. Perhaps. A circuit breaker to Antarctic Peninsula tension of sorts arose in October 1948 when Argentina took up its month-long term as the head of the United Nations Security Council, President Perón nominating Councillor Juan Atilio Bromilia as the diplomat for the top slot. It stood in Argentina's best interests to not antagonise either bloc of the developing Cold War while preparing for, during and in the wake of the appointment, and the Peron government eased up on pressing Britain's buttons in the far south for a bit. Chile, on the other hand, felt no such pressure to ease up and established a new base on Greenwich Island. HMS Snipe and HMS Nigeria prepared to deploy a contingent of 50 marines onto the nearby shore to make sure the Chileans didn't do anything rash with their flag. Chilean Lieutenant Francisco Araya Proramant, sick of listening to the British Prime Minister call the Chilean Antarcticans pirates and thieves in the BBC World Service broadcasts the base radio picked up, and leading a contingent of just five soldiers, prepared to meet the landing force with his one machine gun and six rifles. sounds like an Augusta, one of the new Leonardo helicopters that our emergency services are using here. They're very cool, but they look like they're made of pieces of leftover helicopter. Not pretty. The nascent and likely very one-sided firefight between six Chilean squaddies and 50 Royal Marines and two Royal Navy warships never kicked off as the lighter carrying the British forces ashore went aground on a rock and sank. The warships launched rescue boats which began retrieving the marines just as a storm set in. Another launch made a fresh start for shore, carrying a far smaller contingent 
of far drier marines than just returned to the ships. Lieutenant Pomerant received them graciously with cups of hot tea, and the conversation ran far more amicably than it might had the original contingent of marines made sure. The Brits received the Chilean formal note of protest in silence and returned to their launch, an otherwise promising day of post-imperial bossing the Latinos about, ending in ignominy and a busted and sunk launch. It's not for want of trying, but I cannot find any mention of this event in any British record of Antarctic exploration. The Royal Navy version, as released to Reuters, runs that ice prevented a close approach to shore. Keep that in mind when your nation announces failure to achieve X, or celebrity adventure relates how they couldn't Y. Even the Royal Navy, an apparent crowd of adults with better equipment than any equivalent organisation until the 1950s, euphemised this basic and complete failure at seafaring to their own PR benefit. The following austral summer saw tension between Britain and the Patagonian nations diminish. In part, this was because of filthy weather that made relieving and resupplying existing bases difficult and establishing new ones impossible, and in part because of a three-way agreement among the governments to not send warships on naval exercises south of 60 degrees south. Initiated by Chile, which couldn't afford to try to match the UK and Argentina in naval expenditure, the one-year agreement came into being on the 18th of January 1949, and the three nations renewed the documentation annually until the Antarctic Treaty came into play a decade later. The three-way deal eased the stress on maritime operations in support of the scientific and occupational presences, as the notes of protest were confined to embassies in capital cities rather than handed around on Antarctic shores, where hotheads armed with rifles and machine guns might otherwise escalate matters without the sort of care and attention to ask covering diplomats and bureaucrats apply to such matters. No longer in danger of putting any of its Cold War allies' noses out of joint by picking sides, and likely spotting a means by which to diminish the occupational and administrative lead inherent to territorial claims made by the other six nations involved in establishing toeholds in the far south, the USA proposed that Argentina, Chile, Australia, New Zealand, France, Norway and the USA institute an Antarctic condominium. The other six nations quickly stated that they couldn't all fit in one apartment, and the USA explained it meant condominium in the sense of a nation governed by two or more foreign powers, and the other six nations all went, oh, I knew that, I was just checking that you knew. The UK, feeling all wobbly what with no longer administering the half billion people of the subcontinent and drawing administrative fees for same, leapt at the idea of allying with its rich cousin across the Atlantic. Everyone else rejected the idea. Chile proposed that Antarctic claims be held in abeyance for five to ten years until a solution to everyone's advantage could be thrashed out. The US gambit, claimed by Byrd and by Ronnie and by the State Department as their idea, and overall geared to help firm up a united front against Soviet involvement in the South, died the death. But don't forget it entirely, as a number of its designers and their ideas are due for further iced coffee attention ere long.
The tripartite agreement keeping British, Argentine and Chilean naval exercises north of 60 degrees south saw Argentina rely on tugboats and civilian transport vessels to relieve and resupply its Antarctic stations. The new era did incorporate more Argentine University staff in the nation's Antarctic scientific program, but the bulk of the sailing, lading and construction work still fell to military personnel crewing civilian vessels. The new spirit of international fraternity resulted in an asado aboard one of the Argentine vessels at Port Foster, in which the Argentine participants supplied the meat and the British contingent brought the whisky. On returning the fids to shore, perhaps a little merry on the whisky, some of the British contingent leapt from the boat early, landing in the drink. One of them injured himself badly enough that the FIDs called for medical assistance from the Argentine ships. The British medical officer aboard the John Bisco, Dr Wood, suspected a ruptured spleen, but the Argentine ship surgeons thought he was only experiencing cold shock and bad bruising. Dr Wood insisted on surgery, which he was unable to perform, only having done blood transfusions up to that point in his medical career. So the Argentine medicos began preparing the necessary instruments. On coming aware of the impending internal explorations, the patient recovered enough of their senses to assure everyone present that they were, in fact, just badly bruised and suffering cold shock and whiskey. The FIDs loaded the patient aboard the John Bisco, which carried him north to Stanley, where he made a full recovery and where Dr Wood expressed his gratitude and affection for his Argentine counterparts to the local press, once more demonstrating that absent bureaucrats, people just tend to get along with being people. While making a tour of their refugia that austral summer, one of the Argentine ship's cooks died in a fall down a crevasse as he traversed part of the Dunco coast near Spigot Peak. The cove near the accident site bears his surname as Puerta Lagarique. Argentine President Juan Perón gave a stirring speech about not ceding Antarctic territory and defending Argentine sovereignty in the South Atlantic. He didn't mention Malvinas directly, but the word appeared in bright colours in the thought bubble I drew above him in the picture of the event I came across in my reading. Certainly British diplomatic staff thought the rhetoric mapped British governments of the Falklands as a century-long standing thorn in the Argentine national side, and perhaps a thorn El Presidente hoped to remove as the British ability to reach into the South Atlantic diminished. Thorn in that for later. With his naval exercises excluded from Antarctic waters, President Perón issued Resolution 65-49 to the Secretary of Aviation, calling for the Air Force to purchase aircraft suited to operating in Antarctica and then operating them in Antarctica. Air Force personnel headed to Canada to purchase a Douglas C-47 fitted with skis. Air Force personnel also took over staffing at Alcada Station from that point forward. Fuerza Area Argentina Colonel Hernán Pujato first met President Perón in 1948 while serving as Argentine military attaché to Bolivia. They discussed Pujato's ambitions for Argentine aviation in Antarctica at an entertainment held by the Bolivian government. At the time, Pujato's ideas focused on using assault gliders to carry Argentine military personnel further into Antarctica than powered flight could extend. Axis and Allied aerial assaults during the Second World War amply demonstrated the capacity for gliders to amplify military deployment capacity beyond the refuelling and return flight bottlenecks associated with powered flight. And 
personnel flying into icy expanses of previously untrod territory, probably felt a little more confident of surviving the landing and whatever followed than those soldiers flung into fierce combat past dense batteries of anti-aircraft artillery in a wood and fabric box with wings and a tail. Inventive and economical as Pujato's ideas stood, El Presidente wasn't terribly interested, but his wife Evita, seated next to the aviator during the evening meal, found the young man's plans fascinating and his enthusiasm contagious. She later talked Juan Perón into supporting Pujato's efforts to engender Antarctic enthusiasm in his superiors in the Air Force. Pujato's glider-borne project, proposed up the chain of command in March 1948, came back down the chain of command with a big red rejection stamp as it exceeded the young, just 10 years out of military college, Colonel's logistics remit. The government's recently restated intent to consolidate Antarctica in the national consciousness, to hone Argentina's scientific program in the south, to purchase an icebreaker and to reach the South Pole, gave the aviators subsequent calls for Antarctic enthusiasm within the Air Force greater clout. Pujato attended a polar survival course held by the US Army in Alaska. He purchased 36 sled dogs in Canada. I think I'm reading the Spanish text correctly when I relate that he paid for both of these preparations on his own coin. If that's the case, these gambits mark Pujato out as one of the most dedicatedly determined Antarcticans in the ice coffee narrative. The success stories emerging from the ongoing Norwegian, British, Swedish Antarctic expedition further spurred government enthusiasm for a more scientifically centred Argentine Antarctic presence. The deputation sent to Canada to seek a suitably ski-equipped C-47 to purchase emerged as the first definitive indication Pujato's efforts and Perón's support for same bore fruit. Pujato then received an almost free hand in planning an expedition, but the project stumbled in the morass of communications black holes and deliberate go-slow campaigns that always seem to arise when a nation's armed forces are called on to collaborate. The Armada Argentina found myriad excuses to not carry Pujato's men and materials to Marguerite Bay. Indignant, Pujato turned to shipping companies for the logistics support he needed. The Perez Brothers Company provided the war surplus tank landing ship Santa Michaela, otherwise in use for resupply contracts around the Patagonian coast, and the services of Captain Santiago Farrell for the peppercorn rental of one peso. Cheap at twice the price, even then. Pujato received an order to return to Buenos Aires to address questions about the expedition while on a field training exercise in the Andes. Anticipating a brief disjunct, he told his three subordinates to remain at their shelter until his return. Bureaucratic interference delayed that return, and while Pujato dealt with red tape, a storm caught the trio out in the open on the mountainsides, and they died of exposure. A tragic start to his expedition, but Pujato commemorated his dead comrades by adding their names to the Antarctic landscape that his efforts eventually saw him explore. On the 12th of February 1951, President Perón gave a stirring speech a marching band played the March of San Lorenzo, and a formation of eight Fuerza Iria aircraft flew overhead, 
as the Primera Expedición Científica Argentina a la Antarctica sailed from Buenos Aires. The ARA Sanaviron accompanying the civilian Santa Micaela as the Armada Argentina attempted to save face in the face of its previous intransigence. I read this as the Navy hitching its wagon to the Air Force project just enough to receive some reflected glory if it succeeded and to deny any responsibility if it all went pear-shaped. Many of the government officials Bahato interacted with in the lead-up to the project considered the aviator a madman and I'm sure local bookmakers raked in some handsome profit from punters betting against his success off the back of the negative scuttlebutt spread behind his. In another financial nod to this dedication to Argentina's future in Antarctica, Pujato sailed without any remuneration for his stay in the south. High summer temperatures made life below decks unbearable and a national mosquito plague that followed the ships out to sea for several days as a gradually diminishing cloud of the little bastards made the early days at sea a trial for the expedition personnel. Unable to fit a lot of the perishables into the small refrigerated compartment fitted to the Santa Michaela, the expeditioners lost a lot of their fresh food to rotting in the sultry lazarette. As the Labuan demonstrated in service to the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions two years earlier, the flat-keeled landing craft tank of the era weren't cut out for Southern Ocean operations, let alone for Southern Ocean operations while carrying an overburden of cargo. Captain Farrell faced a problem to which there is no single solution, just a broad range of compromises. Do you go fast on the shortest line, or slow and on a heading that causes the least adverse motion? He chose slow and oblique progress over the wild oscillations the swell imposed on the hull, any direct heading or high speed imposed on the Santa Michaela. A storm hit the expedition during the Drake Passage crossing, and the hull of the Santa Michaela warped to the point a crack formed in the deck of the main hold. Sailors applied limey cement as the poultice of last resort, slowing the ingress of ocean, but unable to prevent further tensile tearing. Pumps ran at full speed, and all Argentine jaws clenched all Argentine teeth as the small ship pushed on south. No one aboard entirely sure if their future lay above or below sea level. Obviously they made it, or the project would be better known in Antarctic history annals, but I'll milk the moment for dramatic effect regardless. On the 8th of March, after a 24-day transit, the ships arrived in Marguerite Bay. All hands and a Lloyd model tractor went to work unloading equipment and stores ashore at Barry Island among the Debenham Islands, the same site John Rymel chose for the second winter quarters of the British Grahamland expedition. Digression. I think I mentioned that Kenneth Barry Lempriere Debenham was the eldest son of Professor Frank Debenham, geologist during Scott's second expedition and key player in the early days of the Scott Polar Research Institute and part of the advisory committee to the BGLE and Operation Tabarin. In case I didn't, I'll mention that Barry was born in 1920 and joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve as war broke out in Europe. He was called up shortly after and completed his training as a fighter pilot just in time to take part in the earliest days of the Battle of Britain. He claimed two German aircraft destroyed before his own aircraft, a Hawker Hurricane, was shot down. Badly burnt in the resulting crash, 
Barry received groundbreaking plastic surgery under the care of pioneering New Zealand surgeon, Dr. Archibald McIndoe, making him part of the Guinea Pig Club social support network for service personnel healed back to a semblance of their pre-fire life by the team at the Queen Victoria Hospital, East Grinstead. Barry Debenham died in 1943 while flying a Spitfire in a search and rescue reconnaissance looking for a missing squadron colleague along the Italian coast. End Barry Debenham digression. Among the offload, a bronze chest of soil taken from Yapeyu, the hometown of Jose San Martin, liberator of Argentina, Chile and Peru. 1950 marked the centenary of his death and the government charged Buhato with celebrating the national hero with this humorous gesture and the base the expedition began constructing still operates, periodically, as Base General San Martin. For 12 days they laboured to erect two-storey double-walled living quarters, an emergency shelter, stores huts, generator shed, dog shelters and four 25 metre tall towers from which to suspend the rhombic antenna array, which was the style at the time in terms of long-range communications. Colonel Puhato inaugurated the base on the 21st of March and the eight occupants began making themselves at home for the winter. On the 26th of March, the ships weighed anchor and departed, leaving Argentina's first Antarctic presence below the Antarctic Circle and the southernmost permanent human presence in Antarctica, to that date anyway. Expedition 2IC, Lieutenant Luis Roberto Fontana, snuck out of hospital following an appendectomy just a day before the expedition departed Buenos Aires. Complications arising from spending his convalescence aboard a wobbly ship crossing from torrid to frozen climes saw him shipped home again. Three days later, a Grumman Goose flying boat broke the isolation of this new Argentine bastion, paying a visit from the Armada Argentina vessels resupplying base Melchior and dropping off some consumable niceties and a tranche of mail arising in the month the expedition spent in transit and construction. Blizzards quickly identified holes in the buildings, filling half the living quarters with fine-packed snow blowing down the antenna array and blowing apart the Stevenson screen. The accommodation hut caught fire, but the flames came under control quickly. Gradually, the wintering party repaired and buttressed their base against the damaging conditions and settled into the routines that would see them through the winter. It's getting well chilly at this point, so I'm going to pack up my stuff and head home. I'm now down in one of the bird hides at Point Wilson, looking out over the wetlands. This is the first place I ever saw brolgers. I actually saw a lot of birds. I was coming down here all through 2022 to work at Point Wilson. And I loved it because just every day the place is just a wash in birds. I, I thought it was magical. I thought it was a magical place, but then I realised it's what most of Victoria was like once upon a time. It's a relict. And I got a bit sad. But it's still a wonderful place to come to because it's a relict. I've got the microphone positioned in such a way I think the echo in here won't cause too much trouble, but 
Having said that, I might turn it around the other way, face outwards. Hope that's better. In April, President Perón sent a radiogram announcing his inauguration of El Instituto Antarctico Argentino, setting the operation up in a Buenos Aires residence retrofitted with labs, geological equipment, taxidermy facility, darkroom, map cabinets, library and a museum that it occupied until 2017. A big step up just from having a national commission. Sledging operations with the 36 Canadian dogs covered 1,287 kilometres that winter, much of the travel comprising sea ice sledging, but the team also found a route up the mountains and onto the Polar Plateau, naming the area they mapped after San Lorenzo. While Pujato and his comrades saw out their austral winter, Argentina went to the Poles. Juan Perón received 63% of the vote, many of those voters voting for the first time on account of being women and excluded from national politics up to that point, and began his second term as president. Apart from half the adult population taking part in the democratic process for the first time, this election marked the first time votes arising from Antarctica came into the mix, with the residents of Argentine bases taking part. Pujato's ambitions passed a significant milestone while he was at Barry Island, that being the arrival of the ski-equipped C-47 at the newly created Grupo Aereo de Tareas Antarcticus. This highly specific tasking group also received the modified Avro Lincoln, the same Lancaster-derived long-range bomber the Royal Australian Air Force used for its meteorological and Macquarie Island resupply missions in the Southern Ocean. Argentina bought 18 of the four-engine monsters new and a further 12 reconditioned units all going cheap, seeing as the airframe's forecast role in the Pacific proved moot after VJ Day, and with Britain needing hard currency at the hurry-up. The 30 airframes gave Argentina most potent bomber capacity in South America at the time, but the aircraft only served against Argentine nationals, working to suppress rebel activity during an attempted coup in 1951, and later flying missions for both establishment and rebel forces during the successful coup Argentine history records as La Revolución Libertadora, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. One airframe stayed behind in the UK after purchase to receive modifications usually applied to convert Lancaster bombers into Lancastrian airliners. With defensive armament and electronic warfare equipment removed, turret apertures fared over and ferry tanks in the fuselage, the dedicated Antarctic support machine, the first Lincolnian, christened Cruz del Sud, featured even longer legs than the Australian Lincoln Mark 31 maritime patrol conversions, up in the vicinity of 5,000 nautical miles in the hands of an experienced crew operating in favourable weather. With no major fuck-ups reported from Marguerite Bay, the Armada Argentina felt more inclined to provide logistics support to Air Force Colonel Pajato that austral summer. Captain Emilio Diaz led the transport ships Bahia Aguirre Bahia Buen Suceso, the Tugs, San Aviron and Chiriguano, and the tanker ship Punta Ninfas, and the frigates Hercules and Sanadi 
for the 1951-52 Relief and Resupply Mission and to establish a new permanent base at Bahia Esperanza. And I need to give the FID some attention before we catch up with how that project played out. In 1949, with Eagle House at Hope Bay burnt to the ground and two FIDs dying in the flames, all remaining staff at that far end of the Antarctic Peninsula were demobbed, at least from Hope Bay itself. Port Lockroy lay in mothballs. Plans to establish Base K at Snow Hill Island lay in abeyance due to sea ice conditions in the Weddell Sea. Base B at Deception Island and Base F in the Argentine Islands reduced their staffing and attentions to meteorology under the leadership of G.D. Stock and T.M. Jumbo Nickel, respectively. Sydney Island concentrated on biology under the leadership of R.M. Laws. At Admiralty Bay on King George Island, base leader Geoffrey Hattersley-Smith kicked off glaciological work while Jefford, formerly part of the Hope Bay contingent, surveyed the island and Jardine carried on with the geological work started by the recently deceased base leader, Platt. Half the team at Stonington Island, Aidy, Huckle, Jones, Randall and Stonehouse, reached the unwelcome record of a third Antarctic winter with traditionally stiff British upper lips. Disappointed, the Bisco failed to relieve and replace them, but buoyed by Sir Miles' promise to send an aircraft to retrieve them if the ice didn't play nice at the end of the year. Given the FIDS vessel John Bisco only managed to relieve the Stonington Island contingent most recently with the aid of US Navy icebreakers, Sir Miles also began contemplating putting Trapassi House into mothballs as per Bransfield House at Port Lockroy. With no airframe to service or operate, the Hornet Moth never arriving at Stonington and its ski gear never reaching as far as Deception Island, Pilot Toynbee and aircraft fitter Jones made themselves useful as best they could. The British press, for want of anything else to do, blew the story of the Stonington residents into a hero tale of polar castaways fighting for survival, which they weren't, but the popular label The Lost Eleven stuck with the party for some time. Duncan Cass, the Etonian cadence mariner aboard the Panola during the British Grahamland expedition, at the time working as a voice actor filling the eponymous role in the BBC radio series Dick Barton, Secret Agent, expressed frustration at this nonsense. The press, aggrieved at someone busting their self-generated bloviation bubble, turned on Cass and told him that his fictional hero should produce some real action, not realising at the time how big a badass they were addressing and how much better he understood the situation than they did. Pin in that for later. About 30 episodes later, by my guess. Vivian Fuchs, operating in support with Spivey, detached a three-man party comprising Stonehouse, David Dalgleish and Dave Jones to the Dion Islands for a ten-week observation of the Emperor Penguin colony discovered there the previous summer. Stonehouse wanted to collect a timed series of embryos to examine development in what was still considered one of the more primitive bird species. This wasn't the same impetus that drove Wilson, Bowers and Cherry Garrard across Windless Bight in the winter darkness of 1912. The eggs returned north by the surviving member of that worst journey in the world failed to support the recapitulation ideas in favour when the Terra Nova left for Antarctica, an idea largely fallen from favour by the time the ship returned the alive members of Scott's expedition to the UK. 
but Stonehouse could have benefited from reading the narratives of his predecessors to find out when to expect emperor penguins to lay their eggs. The penguin rookery party arrived to find the bulk of the resident adult birds already waddling about with their eggs on their feet, kept warm by the brood pouch of well-feathered flesh folded over from above and the down-covered ankles below. This being the first observation of nesting emperor penguins to extend beyond a brief grab-and-go mission, the trio gained some interesting insights, among them the fact that the breeding instinct is so strong in adult birds that a penguin without an egg will carry almost any other object they can fit beneath the brood pouch as a proxy, including a Leica camera. Someone left the camera unattended and it disappeared, the leather carry strap dragging behind a determined bird giving away the doomed, but kind of sweet, parental gambit. Fuchs and Spivey surveyed the Dion Islands and the Fuez Islands, while the penguinologists got on with their observations. This survey work extended British understanding of the peninsula their nation claimed an order of magnitude beyond what Chile or Argentina could catch at that time, though falling short of Ronnie and Eklund's furthest extent during the USASAE. Sir Miles Clifford made his intention to mothball Trapassi House known to its occupants late in their stay, and, as the governor expected, this cast a pall on the men in his care. The work they began, or carried forward in the wake of their predecessors, looked likely to fall on its ear without further seasons to build on the surveying and geologising in the region, leaving the field open for Argentina or Chile, or, gasp, the USA, to come along and finish the job and publish the findings, all attendant kudos and perceptions of effective administration of the area falling somewhere other than Britain. Sir Miles remained unmoved by protests though, as a base that can't receive its resupply is an icy mausoleum in waiting. Trapassi House's days received the number. Fuchs determined to use the remaining sledging time to good effect, but in order to make full use of the dog teams, the first foray needed to return to the Dion Islands to gather the seal carcasses killed there in order to keep the dogs fueled up. Recall that the recent existence of both FIDS and rare dog teams at Stonington Island killed off the resident seal stocks and it takes time for large, low fecundity animals to refill a vacuum left in the wake of intense and wide-ranging hunting. See also fur seal stocks. Fuchs and Ray 80 kept the dogs at the Dion's for a few weeks to feed up on the living seal population and to regain some of the condition they lost during a lean winter. While on site, Fuchs recorded the following passage about one of the lead bitches, Lizzie. Quote, she was very lovable, but a real old trollop with no morals at all. When in season, she always contrived to get off her span and then went around visiting every dog she could before we caught up with the situation. We never had the faintest idea who was the father of her endless litters. But on this occasion, it was not love that was on her mind. She managed to get loose just for fun and was found happily chasing penguins, who by now were all holding tiny chirruping chicks. A number lost their young in the scramble and all of us spent a lot of time in the dark and a high wind trying to collect them. The live ones were brought back to the tents to be kept warm until we could return them to the rookery the next morning. Settling down for the night, we had hardly got to sleep when a vociferous cheeping woke us, which was obviously going to continue indefinitely. At wit's end, we suddenly thought of feeding them with pre-masticated herrings in tomato sauce, the only fish we had. 
Soon we were all busy munching and dropping small, unsalubrious lumps into tiny, ready gaping beaks, after which silence prevailed. It was not long before we were to sympathise with penguin parents. For every two hours throughout that very long night, the whole pantomime had to be repeated if we were to get any sleep. At dawn, we thankfully relinquished our fostering. The chicks were returned to the rookery and immediately adopted by eager adults. End quote. On setting north with the seal meat, the party also carried four adult emperor penguins and three chicks in a plywood enclosure. The animals, destined for the London Zoo, with all the attendant tropical misery and short lifespan such adventures entailed for such birds at that point in the 20th century. Two of the chicks didn't even make it to Stonington Island, being trampled to death by the adults as their enclosure swayed on the sledge. Ice fishing became the common sport at Stonington after the birds' arrival, as the remaining five examples required 33 of the local notithanoids a day. Three of the adults escaped while at Stonington, when heavy snow afforded them the elevation necessary to step over the top of their chicken wire enclosure, leaving one adult and a well-grown chick to carry the species north, where they died of aspergillosis, a fungal lung infection that's easy to stave off if you're not burdened with asthma, cystic fibrosis, or an immune system attuned to life in an almost microbially sterile icy wasteland. Fuchs also set a team to drilling and measuring the ice thickness to the north of Nemi Fjord, hoping to find a viable path for the John Bisco to open up the following summer. The final round of Stonington Island sledging forays kicked off on the 8th of September. Huckle, Brown, Spivey and Toynbee took four sledges south to establish depots at Terra Firma Island and Mushroom Island. At that point, Spivey and Toynbee left the bulk of their remaining stores with Huckle and Brown before making a lightweight dash back to Trapassi House. Huckle and Brown pressed on south to lay a final depot as far south as possible before completing the King George VI sound survey begun the previous year. Fuchs and Aidy departed south on the 1st of October, aiming to use the depots to sustain a survey of the Jurassic and Cretaceous sedimentary rocks of Alexander Island. Deep snow slowed the progress of all parties involved and the dogs lost condition quickly. A rare and fortuitous encounter with 11 Adelie penguins on the sea ice near Eckland Island prevented Fuchs and Aidy having to feed dogs to dogs in order to get back to Marguerite Bay. While at Eckland Island, Fuchs found the claim sheet left behind in 1940. Tucked in a specimen bottle, deposited beneath the lowermost stone in a can, the document read, quote, this peak in George VI Sound was climbed this day by the Southern Party of the United States Antarctic Expedition 1939-41. It's based in Marguerite Bay, close to Nene Fjord. Carl R. Eklund, Tomahawk, Wisconsin, USA, naturalist. Finn Ronnie, leader of this party and chief of staff, USAS. December 14th, 1941, brackets, sick, brackets, end quote, sick, because this date should have read 1940. Fuchs took the note with him on the excuse that it wasn't an official State Department claim sheet issued by the USASA's cadastral surveyors. They left in its place beneath the rebuilt can, a note recording the details recounted by the American note and those of his own visit to the site. Because official isn't officially official unless it's official. And British.
While awaiting clear weather in which to begin their return journey, Fuchs and Aidy ran out of books to read and topics of conversation to spark interest, to the point that Ray Aidy began reading the labels on their tins of food aloud and with considerable thespian flair. Despairing at this raconteurial nadir, Fuchs developed a dialogue along the theme of what geological insights might lie beyond their current reach. Planning the logistics necessary to support a project to answer this projected question while waiting out the blizzard 420 nautical miles from Trapassi House sowed the seed that later grew into the Trans-Antarctic Expedition, of which much more anon. Meanwhile, Jones and Blakelock sledged north of Stonington Island to finish a survey of the Bourgeois Fjord, kicked off by the BGLE. They discovered a waterway connecting it to the Bigorden Fjord, the channel between the systems blocked by an ice shelf, but fulfilling a prediction made by Launcelot Fleming 15 years earlier. Fuchs and Aidy's return journey featured stops at what later became known as the Buttress Nun Attacks in the southeastern corner of George VI Sound, previously unvisited, and at fossil and coal-bearing shale nun attacks on Alexander Island. Hitting depots just as the dog pemmican ran out meant the dogs were spared hauling more weight than absolutely necessary, or going in the pot. Their luck nearly gave out when one of their depots and a nearby seal carcass, killed on the way south, parted ways with the fast ice and drifted a short distance. Tantalisingly close but out of reach, the pair faced the distasteful dog-as-dog-food option until Fuchs found a point at which the broken-out ice only lay ten feet from that which remained attached to the mainland. They bridged the gap with a sledge, carefully cantilevered into place, and making a neat physical metaphor for trail life, and made as sound as possible with packed snow. This served to get the other sledge and a dog team across to the ice adrift. They retrieved the floating stores and the seal carcass, and we know this because the floating ice didn't drift any further during the operation, in which case we might not even know where the last sledge tracks ran to. Sad pin in that for later. The final run for the sledges brought them across Nini Fjord on the 28th of December, with all the milk pools, tide cracks and drubbings associated with sea ice sledging at that point in the Austral summer. Frustrated and sodden, Fuchs and Aidy depoted equipment and samples to try to prevent further breaks through the sea ice surface, and still felt lucky when Stonington hove into view. They weren't safe yet though. In the past weeks, the residents laid out long dark slicks on the sea ice surface comprising seawater, diesel and soot, seeking to accelerate the summer melt and open up space for the seaplane due to carry the entire team north. The measure proved very effective, but this made it impossible for the sledges to spot a safe path to the island shore. Fortunately, Jones and Blakelock came out to guide the effective Stonington newcomers out on trail for three months, backed by the only remaining safe route. After 1,084 miles on trail, not counting relaying, the filthy men needed baths and the clean dogs needed something foul to roll in and both species found their needs served on Stonington Island's hospitable shores. Meanwhile, at midwinter, Jumbo Nickel and his base F companions, Dennis Farmer and Jock Tate, attempted to forge a route to Darbell Bay, 100 miles north of Marguerite Bay. 
Low temperatures and a lack of sleeping bags put paid to their efforts, while frozen batteries prevented them getting word out to anyone that they were alive but turning back, leading to some concerns about their safety among the FID's bases. Though they kept word from reaching the British press, which would have couched the situation as Three die in frozen wasteland while honouring king and country with their fallen hero blood. Or similarly overwrought bollocks, as is the British press mode. Captain Harry Kirkwood sailed the John Bisco south that austral summer, reaching Stanley in early December. Sir Miles Clifford, unwilling to leave anything to chance, or to De Havilland Aviation UK, visited Canada to purchase the last Nordoyan Norseman to come off the production line and to order two de Havilland Canada Beavers, newly on the bush plane scene and set to reset the standard previously set by its predecessor, the Norseman. With Beavers, the hot ticket item for cold weather operations in Canada at the time and therefore not available until military orders were filled, he got the Norseman mounted on floats and paired it with a similarly maritime themed Oster as the means by which to extract his marooned FIDs, loading the airframes aboard the John Bisco and sailing south in company with them, and Royal Air Force Flight Lieutenant John Lewis and Royal Canadian Air Force pilot Pete St. Lewis as their pilots. The ship reached Deception Island in early January 1950 and tried to push on to the Argentine Islands to give the aircraft better range with payload opportunities to reach Stonington. Pack ice prevented a close approach to this destination until late in the month, even with Flight Lieutenant Lewis scouting the best possible route with the Oster. Sir Miles used the delay to reopen Port Lockroy, installing J.H. Chaplin, T. Burgess, K.R. Gooden and W.A. Walker as a means to prevent Argentine and Chilean encroachment in the absence of British representation. The Trapassi House residents packed their belongings, essential samples, notebooks and reports, carefully weighing and parceling everything in preparation for their aerial egress. They set an ice-conditioned watch from atop Nini Island and maintained an hourly radio schedule with Sir Miles and Pilot Officer St Louis, who made a reconnaissance flight on the 30th of January in company with Stonington alumnus Ken Butler, serving as Sir Miles Clifford's Secretary of FIDS, known colloquially as SecFIDS. I don't know what bird that was, but I'm keeping an eye out. There's a lot of swan signets around. And if you've ever dealt with black swan parents, enraged by your presence anywhere near their babies, you'll know it's a very good thing to keep such an eye out. Butler volunteered to swap out as temporary radio operator as the evacuation played out. St. Louis overflew Trapassi House, dropping a large bundle of mail and a leg of lamb. To everyone's surprise but his own, he'd done a landing on a stretch of open water the Nini Island Ice Watch team missed in their ice watching. The plane remained well offshore, and the Stonington contingent got thoroughly soaked in their efforts to launch the dory, and the subsequent two hours spent bobbing about in the brash and the patchy pack ice that took them to reach it. With the wind rising, the plane couldn't hang about and took off with Stonehouse and Randall aboard it and Butler offloaded into the dory, returning to shore in company with Huckle. 
The locals broke out a hoarded bottle of gin to celebrate the first new face in two years. But the novelty of Butler's return ebbed over the following eight days that it took the weather to clear enough for another Norseman flight. St Louis managed a landing closer to shore and a less fraught embarkation of the remaining three-year winter residents, Jones, Huckle and Aidy, along with the two remaining emperor penguins and sundry samples and data books. With scouting aid from Lewis in the Oster, the John Biscoe eventually reached Stonington Island. This saved the lives of 37 of the FID's sled dogs, but the remainder, each in turn and isolated from their kin, received a last meal and a bullet. For two days, the Trapassi House party packed and cleaned and loaded. They boarded up the windows and doors and plugged the chimney and departed. Exhausted by their efforts, saddened at euthanising some of their dogs, and already nostalgic about the end of an era that they played such substantial roles in. The bulk of the 37 dogs heading north aboard the John Biscoe in early 1950 found new homes in FID's bases, but nine of their cohort sailed all the way to Britain. Under a special quarantine exemption, they provided sledging demonstrations at the Polar Pavilion during the Festival of Britain. Originally pitched in 1943 as a centennial celebration of the Great Exhibition of 1851, the project took on an increasingly optimistic cant during its development. Planners intended to use the event to announce Britain's emergence out of the austerity imposed by the economic knock-on effects of the Second World War. The Festival of Britain aimed to showcase industrial, artistic and scientific innovations and technological advances the government hoped would lead the nation into a new era of prosperity. Without slavery and an empire to undergird the economic side of this story, it turned out to be a bit of a pie-in-the-sky affair, in retrospect. It looked damn good and futuristic and shiny. Nestled on the southern bank of the Thames, a series of pavilions and rotundas and a skylon led visitors through a curated cross-section of Britain's apparent future. The Polar Pavilion featured a demonstration ground on which the dogs hauled and past fids erected tents and cooked meals, while watched by audiences held aloft on a gantry. In an adjoining building, a replica high-latitudes hut formed the centrepiece around which visitors examined interpretive displays about polar discoveries, polar travel and polar science. After six months and 2,000 sledging performances, the dogs went to new homes. Darkie adopted Vivian Fuchs and saw out his years towing his human sidekick around Cambridge on a bicycle and jumping over the road markings he perceived as crevasses in the tarmac. With one base burnt out and another boarded up and a field program effectively reduced to met obs and still costing the pay of 26 staff in the field plus admin and ship and aviation support, the FIDS advisory committee, comprising Brian Roberts, ornithologist during the British Graham Land expedition, and Neil McIntosh of the Discovery Institute whaling science body, were up against it keeping the program in the financial black. The only reliable source of funds arose from fees paid by whaling interests operating in the Southern Ocean, and it was their interests in seeing some return for the outlay that saw meteorology and weather forecasting continue at the six remaining FIDS outposts during this lean period. 
Roberts and McIntosh saw the organisation through the austerity of 1950 and 1951, coming out the other side with a renewed remit for British occupation and research, and a more coherent plan for future scientific studies. Vivian Fuchs was offered and accepted charge of the scientific endeavours under the FIDS banner, becoming the leader and, for some time, the sole member of the Falkland Islands Dependencies Scientific Bureau, a role he held for two decades, notwithstanding a couple of years spent on his Transantarctic Expedition Project during the International Geophysical Year. The state of British territorial and scientific interests in Antarctica are summed up in a paragraph on page 134 of Fuchs' book Of Ice and Men. Quote, a harassed senior official, when I challenged him that the only interest seemed to be in finding some immediate return like gold or uranium, exclaimed in horror, Heaven forbid, that would only make things worse. Think of the international trouble it would cause. So what were the poor scientists to do? To find something valuable would make trouble. To soldier on without proper facilities was a travesty of science. Yet the word itself was being used to cloak the real reason for Britain's return to Antarctica. End quote. In addition to interviewing returning FIDS field staff and determining how best to publish and house the attendant data and samples, and handling an increasing number of public inquiries arising from growing interest in the National Antarctic presence, Vivian Fuchs inherited the morass of samples and reports and unpublished data spread across numerous universities and museums and in the homes of British Antarctic veterans, and began the thankless task of first locating, then curating, that sum total of British Antarctic scientific endeavour in the far south. The Natural History Museum, then under the directorship of Dr Norman Boyd Kinnear, agreed to house material, data and reports, taking everything Macintosh already accumulated in his role as head of the discovery investigations, a body with a tenuous future given the parlous state of Southern Ocean whale stocks. Meanwhile, in 1950, Argentina sent the ships Hercules and Santa Sima Trinidad to relieve and resupply the station at the Melchior Islands. The troop transport, ARA Bahia Buen Suceso, the tugboats ARA Chiriguano and ARA San Viron, and the tanker ship ARA Punta Loyala, under the overall command of Commander Rodolfo Panzerini, sailed south to establish Descamento Naval Almirante Brown on the continental shore of Paradise Harbour. Spending between mid-December 1950 and late April 1951 on task. Given the relatively sheltered waters of that area and with the fleet at anchor for the duration, the Navy once more employed a Grumman Goose flying boat for scouting and aerial survey work. I didn't know about it when I wrote episode 136, but the Compañía de Pesca Argentina began operating the largest and most modern whaling fleet in the Southern Ocean at around this time. In spite of the increased efficiency afforded by the newly minted operation, the company finances weren't up to the task of this massive retooling, and the enterprise initiated and overseen by Carl Anton Larsen, progenitor of Southern Ocean Whaling, went to the wall. Though having spent the past quarter century dead, Carl probably wasn't too upset over the matter. The Yacimentos Petrolíferos Fiscales, an Argentine oil company, took over the whaling reins for the years that Southern Ocean whaling remained profitable for them. 
As mentioned earlier, in the Austral summer of 1951-52, Argentina took an interest in establishing itself at the very tip of the Antarctic Peninsula in Bahia Esperanza, which means Hope Bay, the name predating the British presence at Eagle House and therefore requiring transliteration but not replacement on Argentine charts. The transport ship A.R.A. Aguirre anchored up in Hope Bahia Esperanza. See what I did there? Offing and offloaded a construction party of 50 sailors and the stores necessary for that construction party to start constructing the first buildings of what remains base Esperanza to this day. Storms set construction back to zero twice, once leaving the 50 members of the shore party holed up in an emergency shelter the wind already ripped the roof off, making everyone feel pretty stretched about kicking off a third start on the structures that couldn't hope to stand up to the worst of local conditions until almost complete. Faced with getting on with the job or going home to a nation where the Air Force was celebrated for being Antarctic hard cases, the sailors swung their hammers and the buildings took shape. The tug Chiriguano arrived and put ashore a construction team that built a lighthouse that began operating as such on the 1st of January 1952. The Chiriguano supplied much needed crew to the Aguirre. As with most of the personnel on shore, the ship only featured its master and five hands to keep the lights on and to stand anchor watch. The presence of the stronger and more agile vessel also gave the master of the Aguirre some assurance that he and his ship wouldn't become a permanent feature of the bay as the summer passed and the temperatures began to fall. In late January 1952, the John Bisco arrived in Hope Bay, its crew surprised to find the Argentine presence already well established. Pretending not to notice, the Fid ship anchored up and began disgorging its own construction party intent on replacing Eagle House with a new Fid's edifice and sustained wintering presence. A standoff on the beach on the 1st of February saw the Argentine commanding officer order automatic weapons fired over the heads of the FIDS contingent. The John Bisco being a FIDS commissioned vessel and unarmed, the Brits backed up. They weighed up their options and opted for weighing anchor and returning to Stanley in the Falklands. A former Royal Marine, Governor Sir Miles Clifford, wasn't having any of this nonsense. He immediately sent a telegram to the Colonial Office featuring the phrase, quote, this presumably constitutes an act of war, end quote, and headed off to sort those Argentine upstarts out. Winston Churchill, returned to power as British Prime Minister in the October 1951 general election, ordered the Royal Navy to work in support of the Falklands Governor. Churchill was already dark on Argentina for their national reticence to help during the war, for harbouring escaped Nazis, and for its designs on the Falklands. But Churchill's involvement wasn't necessary, as Sir Miles already took the resources he needed and headed south. He tasked the Bay-class frigate, Berghead Bay, serving duty as Falkland Island's guardship, with escorting the John Bisco back to the Trinity Peninsula, carrying a detachment of Royal Marines, preempting any reply from the Colonial Office and breaking the standing orders regarding such matters from the Foreign Office. Arriving at Hope Bay on the 4th of February, the frigate outgunned the Armada Argentina presence by orders of magnitude, and the former Latinate Machismo regarding sovereignty of the shoreline deflated like an overcooked souffle. 
The Argentine contingent skulked in their accommodations as the FIDs came ashore and got constructing. With Sir Miles already on the ground before the colonial office could form a committee by which to spread out responsibility for decisions as much as possible, the British government sent a protest note to Buenos Aires so as to not appear completely redundant. The Argentine officer who ordered the gunfire was reprimanded for exceeding his authority and went home when the Aguirre departed and he received the hero's welcome while Juan Perón's government issued a formal apology for the affront to the United Kingdom so as to not appear one-faced. The FIDs built their new structure without further international hindrance, though the weather took an apolitical stab at them regardless. The HMS Berghead Bay went aground in the face of strong winds on the 7th of February, damaging itself enough to warrant the commanding officer stand a court-martial the following November. With the FIDs afoot at Hope Bay once more, and in the British diplomatic doghouse for disobeying Foreign Office mandate and getting his guardship all scuffed, Sir Miles Clifford returned to Stanley on the 10th of February. The Argentines held an inauguration ceremony for Base Esperanza on the 31st of March, Lieutenant Luis Manuel Casanova taking charge for the first wintering. Before departing the Antarctic Sound area, the Chiriguano discharged cargo at Dundee Island for what would later become Aeronaval Station Petrel, and then established a refugio on Half Moon Island in the South Shetlands. Tension fested, the two parties at Hope Bay not enjoying the sort of convivial cultural exchanges as occurred at Admiralty Bay and Deception Island in previous multinational occupations. Gunfire can do that. Now I'm on the St Kilda foreshore, staying out of the rain, as are most of the birds. I did see some gannets fishing earlier this morning, that was cool. The pied cormorant trying to dry its wings, but it's sitting out in the weather, so it's not going to happen. Back to the narrative. As with their explicitly reprimanded but tacitly lauded repatriated commanding officer, the Argentine shore party received a hero's welcome headed up by Juan Peron himself when they returned to Argentina after their year in the south. With sea ice hampering efforts to reach Barry Island, the Fuerza Aria Argentina sent its dedicated Avro Lincoln south on a resupply mission on the 19th of December 1952. The Cruz del Sud, piloted by Vice Commodore Gustavo Argentino Marimbio and carrying a full fuel load plus ferry tanks plus stores for the Barry Island residents, took the entire length of the runway at Rio Gallegos to get airborne. Another Lincoln flew in formation with the relief plane to offer mutual support as far as the unmodified bomber could reach. Six hours into the flight, the Cruz del Sud descended tentatively through a layer of cloud and found, to the crew's jubilant relief, that their navigation not only didn't lead them into a mountain, but also placed them directly above base General San Martin. They made several low and slow passes overhead to give the parcels of cargo and mail the best chance of reaching the end users safely. The flight continued to 70 degrees south, 
reconnoitering for possible landing sites for future use. The second climb to an altitude sufficient to clear the highest known mountain peaks cost Vice Commodore Marimbio a lot of fuel and he turned north without finding any promising airfields but also without pushing his luck on minimum fuel plus reserve. In 1952 there was no airfield to divert to when a land plane that size flew south from Rio Gallegos so calculating bingo fuel was an important consideration. Fuel efficient high altitude cruising and a tailwind saw the cruise del Sud right reaching Rio Gallegos after almost 13 hours in the air. On the 10th of February, a standard Lincoln bomber made a flight from and back to Rio Gallegos to drop mail over Argentina's more northerly Antarctic stations. Another flight a week later overflew Deception Island, giving the FID something more interesting than MetOBS and Penguin Biology updates to report to Stanley. Argentine air power reached where the tripartite agreement prevented overt expressions of sea power. Cruz del Sud made a visit to Melchior on the 1st of March. The ARA Bahia Aguirre sailed to the relief of base General San Martin late in the summer and used a Sikorsky S-51 helicopter operating from the ship's aft platform to carry out the ship to shore and shore to ship and shore to ship crew transfers. The written resources on the matter assure me this first Argentine use of rotary wing logistics support in Antarctica proved necessary because of sea ice that prevented the ship approaching Barry Island. But the photograph in the text shows clear water out to the ship. Perhaps the photographs from another season, perhaps they only use the S-51 for personnel. Either way, I hate the thought of trying to offload a year's worth of stores in that early output from Sikorsky's helicopter drawing board. Underpowered and short-legged, putting any sort of cargo or endurance strain on those machines ramped up the likelihood of engine trouble and auto-rotation while operating low and slow in such a heavy machine, also recorded as heavy on the controls even when all was going well, doesn't bear thinking about. Helicopter digression. The graphical representation of heights and speeds at which a given helicopter can successfully auto-rotate to a safe landing without power is called that helicopter's dead man's curve, for the good reason that if everything goes quiet while you're operating below those heights or speeds, you won't have to worry about the silence, or anything else, for long. Helicopters ferrying ship to shore spend most of their time operating below their dead man's curve. And that's the problem with helicopters. Their utility arises from their ability to access places fixed wing flight can't access, but to do that, they need to fly low and slow. And that's where any mechanical failure or pilot error leads to a sudden and catastrophic cessation of being a helicopter for the machine, and often of being alive for those aboard or near it. When people tell me helicopters are perfectly safe, what they mean to say is that they're perfectly safe when they're flying above their dead man's curve, at which point they're just an expensive, thirsty, slow, high-maintenance plane that's hard to land when all's going well and very hard to land when anything goes wrong. To do the things that make helicopters worth making and flying, they have to be more dangerous than their fixed-wing counterparts. I like the S-51. It looks cool, and it marks an important chapter in aviation history. But I'm not keen to see one restored to flying condition in the same way that I want to see many other airframes in the air once more. I won't even fly in new-build piston-engine helicopters. 
The helicopter industry turned to turbines for good reasons, centred on power to weight ratios and on reliability due to the fewer moving parts and that those parts that do move mostly rotate instead of reciprocating. An inability to afford better turbine powered helicopters isn't an excuse for someone to run a business based on Hughes 269s or any model of Robinson helicopter. Anti-piston engine helicopter digression over. Colonel Pujato sailed north with his winter companions, the new Barry Island residents being led by Lieutenant Luis Roberto Fontana, he of the successful appendectomy and the unsuccessful recuperation from same the previous summer. All better and settled in for his own winter experience at Base General San Martin. Dense pack ice in the Bellingshausen Sea opened up a gash in the ship's hull and the Aguira returned to Barry Island to make repairs. The image of a crew member kneeling on a plank suspended above the tide by a quarter metre by a block and tackle at each end and welding just above the waterline, one hand on the anode holder and one hand holding the welding mask and no hands holding onto anything likely to keep him out of the tide, with all the attendant drowning, hypothermia and electrocution opportunities such a drubbing might afford a person in that situation if any part of the system moves or if he loses his balance due to focusing entirely on the tiny world of the bead, which is what a welder should be free to do if you expect them to do a good job of welding, gives me occupational health and safety heebie-jeebies. I did see worse in my maritime adventures in 2022, though that's why I don't work for that company anymore. And I guess in the 1952 case, it was either that or faced the Southern Ocean with a hole in the hull. So go you good 1952 Argentine welder. Bahato returned north to a hero's welcome, President Perón greeting him personally and immediately promoting him to Brigadier General and then setting his number one Antarctic plan at a task, planning a follow-up expedition. In particular, he tasked Bejato with the selection and purchase of an icebreaker by which Argentina might make the first active entry into the Weddell Sea pack, all previous incursions into that pack being passive, and most of those involved those incursions paying dearly for their willingness to let the ice take them where it might. Festering tension reared its head once more in January 1953, when Argentina shipped 10 tonnes of soil to its base at Deception Island aboard the tug Chiriguano. Ostensibly, they filled the ship's lazarette with dirt so the base staff could grow vegetables. But the international message played loud and clear to everyone paying attention. Argentina planned to staff its base through the austral winter darkness with vampires. No, I, I wait, the other thing. They were taking Argentina to Antarctica to prove the two things were always one. Which is as stupid as it sounds, and that's only slightly less daft than trying to grow vegetables at Deception Island. The six FIDs at base B managed to ignore this 10 metric fuck tons worth of stupid, but Argentine representatives erecting a hut and a flagpole on the runway cleared and used by Sir Hubert Wilkins in 1928, encroached on their space and dented their sang-froid. The Chileans dented both the Argentine and the British sang-froid by building their own hut near the FIDs and painting Chile on the runway surface in large white letters as a prelude to their stated plan to build an airfield on the island to serve as a staging post by which to service their outposts further south. Colonial Secretary to the Falkland Islands, Colin Campbell, temporarily acting in Sir Miles Clifford's stead as Governor, carried a protest note south and delivered it to the two Argentine Hut residents. 
On returning to Stanley, he sent a report on the situation to the Colonial Office in London. The Colonial Office tabled the report in the British Cabinet on the 31st of January, and the Cabinet resolved to eject the Argentine citizens and dismantle their infrastructure. It takes a lot to force bureaucrats to actually come to a decision that firm, but Argentina pushed its luck too far with that whole flag business. The hut on its own, perhaps. Flagpole in that for three decades later. With the wheels of bureaucracy grinding slow and exceedingly whiny, the Royal Navy sent the convoy defence sloop HMS Snipe south from the West Indies station to sort the Patagonians out. The ship stopped in Stanley to collect the standard detachment of Royal Marines and Colonial Secretary to the Falkland Islands, Colin Campbell, and two local police officers before sailing for the scene of the unwelcome erections. The police went ashore and arrested the two Argentine sailors, a sergeant and a leading corporal, who were residing in the hut as illegal immigrants, and the Marines went ashore and dismantled their hut and the unoccupied hut erected by the Chileans. The snipe carried the Argentine hut occupiers north as a deportation, hoping that by keeping the issue on civilian rather than military grounds, they might avoid a military escalation for no great return, while still making a show of not putting up with such blatant encroachments into perceived British territory. With eight Argentine and three Chilean bases to their six Metobs outposts, the FIDs faced an uphill battle to assert credible territorial relevance where they couldn't match the Patagonian nations for their short logistics chains, and with their sea power waning, the Brits opted to outscience their territorial competitors, following this up with extensive stamp publication and internationally recognised place names on Antarctic maps and charts. But that's a story for another tranche of episodes. The short version is that they did a very good job of it, both in the science and the philately. Interestingly, Vivian Fuchs' book of Ice and Men doesn't mention the Hope Bay incident or the runway shenanigans at Deception Island. Argentine and Chilean jockeying for space and credibility in the South don't receive much mention in the work at all, and I suspect Fuchs received instruction to, or decided off his own bat to, exclude them from his account of British endeavours in Antarctica. While the British couldn't oust the Patagonian presence from the peninsula, they could erase it from their written history leading me to wonder what else they left out, though down that path lie conspiracy theories about pyramids, flying saucers and secret Nazi bases, and sometimes all three at once. The other book I used extensively in preparing notes for this episode was Professor Pablo Fontana's La Pudna Antarctica, El Conflict por el Sexto Continent. And I felt surprised that while the work addressed British activity, it also didn't mention the shots fired at Hope Bay. I hope my efforts at reading the Spanish text didn't lead to any jarring errors of fact or inaccurate dates and names. I can almost read general knowledge Spanish texts based on the time I spent dissecting that book for the information either ignored or actively hidden by other nations' narratives of Antarctic activity. It may yet be some time before I can listen to Spanish effectively and longer again before I try opening my yap and giving forth in that language, but I'm pleased to have a new skill under development. I'm also working on my French for the contracting opportunities fluency might offer me in the future, and brushing up on my Italian, which got a bit rusty in the almost two decades since I employed it on the daily. 
German isn't getting a lot of use, but what I did learn in high school seems to be holding up over time. So I can still order a donut, buy a round of coffees, get a train ticket, and work out where the air museum is. You know, the important stuff. Birthdays and counting years aren't as exciting as back in the days when I received new privileges from my community and heaps of styrene kits from friends and relatives on the anniversary of my ejection from the uterus. But I'll mention that I'm recording this on July the 28th, 2023, the day I turned 50, according to the cultural accounting mode we apply to such matters. My time at sea from mid-June to mid-July went very well, and I'm excited at the prospect of rejoining that team of badass boat operators in August. No idea yet as to whether or not Antarctic contracting with that company lies in the offing, but I enjoy what I do for them, and where they get me to do it is some wild, wild territory, namely Australia's Kimberley region. I never previously worked in the tropics, and the conditions suited me far better than I ever imagined. Crocodiles are a new consideration in my small boat's management, but so long as you don't swim, or reach over the side of the zodiac, or beach comb close to the water's edge, or wander into the mangroves as the tide's rising, or pass too close to them, or look at them funny, or be made of meat, crocodiles largely leave you alone. While on that contract, I listened to Wine by Teenage Jones over and over and over, and it served my oral stimming needs very well, rocking hard enough to pump me up when I needed a boost, and featuring enough harmonic symmetries and clever lyrical hooks to calm me down when I needed to ease up. One of my younger colleagues, a youth of but 20 summers, expressed surprise that I listened to a band he saw perform at Groove and the Moo, but I'm not sure if he was impressed at how cool I am at the half-century mark, or disillusioned that the music of his generation holds broader appeal among the fogies than he previously realised. I can't contact musicians as readily as when I was on Facebook, so I haven't been able to get in touch and ask Teenage Jones for permission to include their music in my output. So I'm going to close out this episode with Das Lifeboat from the Pulsar's eponymous debut album, a singularly beautiful and perfect piece of 1990s synth-pop space rock. I normally shy away from songs with lyrics about shipwrecks and drowning because it seems a bit off-colour given the people I know who died at sea or the deaths at sea I lie one or two removes away from. But this piece is so ridiculously good I can't not include it in the series. I could probably get in touch with David Trumpio if I really tried, but given his punk approach to music production and performance, the guys are part of the Mekons, which is awe-inspiring in its own right, I think I'll risk this one on fair use grounds and hope he gets to hear my output one day and isn't even mad. His output has meant a lot to me since it first came on my radar in 1997. I was going to use Slowly Slowly's song Forget You as the autism leitmotif for the next contract, but I don't want to freak the youngsters out with my Triple J inspired tastes any more than I already have, so I think Dust Lifeboat's going to be my jam from late August through to October. I recently re-examined the user agreements necessary to get my content available through Spotify and decided not to travel that path, as it's pretty draconian stuff. What the platform requires doesn't affect me as much as it might someone trying to make a living from their output, but it's grim that musicians are all but forced to opt in because of the platform's ubiquity among consumers. I hate the gig economy and all the worker and artist rights it strips away from people simply because technology makes it cheap and easy to exploit labour. Spotify, Uber, Uber Eats, it's all just gyms mowing on a less ethically sound footing. And maybe it's convenient and cheap for you to use those modes, 
and maybe you feel okay about it because the people engaged on the value end of the equation could have made better choices, like you did. Machines have been taking people's jobs for a long time now, but until recently, the people they ousted from jobs were already disenfranchised, so no one with any power cared. It's interesting to contemplate what might arise as AI displaces the next tier up on the economic and political stepladder. They have more clout, but they might have already painted themselves into an economic and political corner by not considering the people their own consumer choices fucked over. Certainly they're not in any ethically valid position to cry, poor me, if they lose their job to ChatGPT or a voice synthesizer. That my output isn't on Spotify means you've done something more than passively bumbling across it as an algorithm suggestion on a platform deriving its value from sheer weight of content. And I like that about you. This series takes a lot of effort on my part, and I'm grateful that you do something more than nothing to make it part of your life. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is hot garbage well worthy of a swerve. And on that Hadley Mearsham note, Paul, stop calling me. I kicked you to the curb of my life because you drive drunk and you beat your partner. Either of those on their own warrants me pulling the pin on our friendship, regardless how close we were and what that meant to you. I'm not interested in reconnecting and I'm not interested in your regrets. You're a piece of shit because of choices you made. The choices I make in the matter address how I react to your actions and I react by having nothing to do with you. I know you listen, and I figured the diode nature of podcasting was a better way to express the contempt I feel for you than picking up the phone and hearing your drunk ass bemoaning your loneliness and lamenting where your life ended up. Own your decisions and accept the consequences. Lots of housekeeping at the end of episode 148, but you get that when I take time off. 